Each year in our church, we do a Christmas pageant, and maybe your church does this too. In ours, it's sort of a big deal. It's become this tradition. On a Sunday morning, a few weeks before Christmas, we dress up our kids in costumes. There's Mary, there's Joseph, there's angels and shepherds and wise men and animals, and the kids reenact the Christmas story. Now, our church has been doing this for as long as there's been a Sunday school. And I heard that decades ago, kids would spend weeks memorizing their lines. There would be weeks and weeks and weeks of Sunday morning rehearsals. There were tryouts. It was a big, full-fledged production. But in recent years, something has changed. Every year, it gets harder for kids to commit to the pageant. We can't schedule Sunday morning rehearsals because of dance competitions and basketball tryouts and hockey tournaments. This year we had to recast Mary on the morning of the play because her traveling basketball team won a surprising victory on Saturday night and the championship game was going on at the same time as the pageant. And while moving to a low-key Christmas pageant is a lot less work, it's actually kind of nice, it seems to point to something bigger going on. A lot of older pastors tell me that Sunday mornings aren't what they used to be. They tell me that today people have a lot of other things going on and that church often seems like an afterthought. And as church leaders, it gets harder and harder every year to do what we do, to keep people engaged, to keep them coming, to build up the community. So what's going on? You're listening to New Time Religion, a podcast featuring Dr. Andy Root, produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. And today on our show, we're asking this simple but oh-so-loaded question, what's going on? Why are youth sports teams and activities elbowing the church off the table in the family's priority list? And where can the church go from here? With that, here's Andy. Yeah, I mean, like, what's going on there? Gosh, it, it feels like that's been, for anyone who has been leading any kind of faith community in suburbia, this has been a huge challenge, I think. You know, like, how do you how do you get people to, to invest inside of all these other opportunities? So, I mean, we've, we've talked on this podcast before about how identity works and things like that. I'm under the impression that Inside the Age of Authenticity, and we talked a lot, people have to go back to the next podcast to, to hear us talk about the Age of Authenticity, but there is this sense in the Age of Authenticity that everyone gets to decide for themselves what it means to be human, everyone gets to decide for themselves what it's, what's their identity, and I think that actually puts a lot of anxious pressure on parents. In the sense, as a parent, you really don't have the right, if you want to be a good parent, to impose on your kid's identity. Like if your kid around 12, 13, 14, 15 makes a statement like, this is me, you, to be a good parent, you have to, for the most part, affirm that. Like you have to affirm that, that, okay, that's, that's cool. So the only real power you have as a parent, I think, is to help your kid. The only real power you have for a parent to, to help your kid formulate their identity is to help your kid find their thing. Like, what are they into? What is their thing? And so I think especially for people of privilege, like middle class folks with with some disposable income, you end up spending a ton of time and a ton of money helping your kid find their thing. Because you feel like if they can find their thing, then they at least have something that's directing, some kind of, like, I don't know, some kind of uh, switches, like in a railroad, that are, are, are directing their identity in some way. So you're willing to get up at 6 in the morning and drive your kid to hockey practice. And you know what? Um, 
that thing, like playing basketball, like playing volleyball, like just being in the choir at, at your school or, or test prep, all those things are way more significant, you imagine, to helping your kid. They're, they're directly connected to the thing that helps your kid find their identity. So guess what? Church is important. We love church. Church is great, as his parents says. But when it comes to actually ranking the things that I need my kid to be happy, um, for my kid to have a solid identity, unfortunately, it slides down the list. Now, here's the thing about finding your thing, if you're with me so far, is that there you fail more than you succeed. And so if you're a parent, man, you realize, basically your garage is a shrine to all the failed things. You know what I mean? Like yeah. old golf clubs, gymnastic outfits, a couple used musical instruments. Play it in doesn't take musical instruments, but you get my point here. Is this is all just the collateral damage of helping your kid find their their thing? But the point is to help your kid find their thing because the sense is your kid can't be happy unless they actually have discovered um, their thing. And so as we pick up the threads from previous episodes of our show, in the age of authenticity, when it's up to us to create and curate our identity, and when the only way to perpetuate that identity is through the recognition from others, it's important, it is vital that everybody finds their thing. Because with that thing, if you can pull it off, comes recognition. And with recognition comes your identity. Or so we believe. There's that recognition piece. Yes. I mean, that, that's that got to play into it. Well, he does. Yeah. Because, well, what's going to happen is you get way more cultural recognition if you're uh, part of the championship uh, uh, B um, Wyzetta hockey team than you get for being in the freaking church, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Christmas the pageant. pageant. Yeah. You get your name in the bulletin. Or being confirmed even. Right. Like, you know, though, and, and so I think one of the things that we, we, we sometimes think is like, oh, parents, they just, they just don't get it, man. And they just, they just don't, they just, uh, they just don't get it. They're just totally taken over and they don't get it. I actually think they get it pretty darn good. Like they get that this is more helpful to their kid finding their, their thing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's hard even, at, you know, with my own kids, like would I rather have my kid be celebrating with a bunch of other kids that they have accomplished this great task or learning the small catechism? Yeah. And so that, that, that also goes to this kind of sense of what we've talked about in this podcast too, of like, where do we feel like the kind of existential energy is? And like, if you think like your kid could get possessed by a demon, Get them to church. Get them yeah. confirmed. Yeah. Make sure that they confirm their baptismal rights because they have to protect them. If you're like, well, I mean, it's really what you believe about yourself, what you will will to commit to. And actually, my kid, what forms my kid's will more is having to skate in hockey six nights a week because they learn how to work hard. They learn how to work, work with the team. They learn communication. They learn all sorts of other skills that will help them be more successful. I mean, those become very different kind of perspectives. But here's the thing. I, I You know, we've been talking about identity the last two episodes. I actually am not sure that identity is really ultimately constructed around the thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's a way to do it. 
But for the thing even, and I think this is what's frustrating in a huge excess of being a middle-class parent, for the thing even to become fodder for the identity, you need to actually, the thing has to take on narrative shape. So it needs a story. Like I interviewed this couple um, for this book and like basketball was the thing. What's the name of the book? The book is going to be, <laughs> I think the book is, it's in the middle of being titled right now. I think it's going to be called The End of Youth Ministry. Like, okay. like I said, like nice dystopian uh, Good. title. Good. That will get people to read it and then be like, hey, it's actually not about the end of youth ministry at all. It's yeah. about something else. And then I'll have to respond to those emails. But uh, I interviewed these folks and like basketball was everything. They had three daughters. All they ever did is basketball, 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 basketball. Mom and dad had played basketball in college. Uh, wife's father was, you know, 30-year basketball coach at high school. Basketball, basketball, basketball. And they basically said, like, for us, a high good. What it means to be part of this family is to be active. And for us, that's basketball. Like, girls don't have to play basketball, but they have to be active. But basketball, basketball, basketball. And all these girls did. They played on travel teams. I think they said in the, in the, in the in, like, the height of the winter, like January, February, it was basketball seven days a week and often two or three practices like uh, games or practices a night like they, these people were just nothing but basketball and I think that the husband even said something like you know all it is for us in the winter months is basketball basketball laundry repeat like that's all yeah. all it is but what you realize pretty quickly is that basketball ends up becoming this really dynamic thing for these girls but it's not just basketball it's that they have incredible narratives around basketball. Like you can't separate basketball from the fact that mom and dad fell in love meeting at an elite basketball camp. Can't take away the fact that grandfather was this important person in the community and basketball was part of it. Can't take away the stories of what it felt like. You know, um, one of the daughters saying, like, I remember the first time I I, sang, I, I, I I made my first three-pointer and looked into the stands and saw my grandfather jumping up and down. Like, those are incredible narratives. Or other daughters saying, one, one of my best days of my life was when my dad took me to buy my first basketball shoes. And then we went out to Culver's. It was just the two of us. Like, those are huge narratives. So narrative, I don't think identity is constructed around the thing. I think identity is constructed around narrative yeah and so at that level the church ironically looking very differently looking looking differently from a cultural perspective is actually in a better place than the thing because we whatever the church is it's a robust place of narratives and stories but we actually default on that too often are like whoa let's not lead with our stories like the stories of this community let's you know let's let's tell them all the functional things we do um you know like your parent was saying like well when you do great events like the pageant and things like that will come because she's thinking the level of things but really what will transform her child is narratives and stories so i think we have to be humble, not try to bring back the ship that has sailed, but then we have to think about how we put our people into experiences of both more hearing, but also telling a ton of stories to make meaning with, and particularly young people, that, that you only really create, you only really have an identity around around stories. And there's more to say about that that maybe we can get into, but yeah. uh, I think that, so that, I think that's a, a big transition. Now, if you ask me, this is actually the spot where the church should feel pretty good about its prospects in the age of authenticity. And at this point, maybe the church needs to get out of the recognition game altogether. 
Maybe it's time we stopped putting so much emphasis on competing for people's time and participation and instead doubled down on the fact that we are communities that are pretty well versed and pretty well practiced in telling and sharing stories. And that this, in the end, is the true catalyst in creating identity. What I would be more inclined to say is that it's not about us creating experience, maybe in some ways, um, but it's about, well, it is, it's about creating experience, but creating experience by inviting people to reflect and retell the experiences they already have. So people already have those experiences. So it's almost like, you know, creating spaces for this continued reverberating testimony is what becomes really significant of people trying to make sense of their lives. I, I, I think this is kind of Taylor's point about the secular age is that the more you try to articulate what meaning you find in the secular age, the more you start to take on an open take within the secular age. Like the more you start to see that there are more coincidences and more transcendent realities, that there's more within it. I think one of the reasons that we can live with such a flat understanding of the secular age, like there is no transcendence. There's just, you just live and you die. There's just buying things and, you know, enjoying your products. Like the only reason we can actually believe that is, is because we don't tell our stories. Like once you start telling your stories, I mean, I guess you could say, well, this is just a trick of evolution or this is just a weakness of human of human psychology is that when we start telling stories, we re rewrite our realities and we see things that aren't there. Or when we tell our stories, we actually see what's real and that there's an obscuring of modernity that keeps us from seeing that there's more going on even in our own lives. So I think part of what the, the church does is help people tell these stories and when people tell their stories, they're all of a sudden like, oh, well, that's crazy. How did that happen? And wow, man, I guess there was someone really watching out for me. Or wait, oh my gosh, I never realized that in telling that story. that My grandmother had prayed for me about that all the time. But because we kind of live in these self-enclosed worlds where we never even have someone help us interpret our stories and tell our stories, things do feel incredibly flat. What the secular age does in many ways is it gives us all these freedoms, but it also closes in our purviews and, and it closes us down. And so he's just, I mean, his, his latest book is called Language Animals. And it's a really hard book because it's like a preamble to poetry. But that, I mean, what's, what's informative about that, like you're thinking, oh, snooze fest. But what's informative about that is that Taylor just can't believe that the reductions that that often find their way into culture, like that all we are are, you know, this is just chaos. There's no meaning here. He ultimately believes that just can't be true because we're the kind of animals who write poetry. That we're the kind of animals that have to narrate our experiences. That even in hearing a story, we have to ask the question, what does this mean? What does this say about what it means to be human? What does this say about who's in, who orders this world? Is there order in this world? There's got to be an order in this world. But you, it, it's almost like our problem with our secular age is the deficit of stories. And that the church somehow is conceded to not be a place where we just continue to narrate this experience. And I think what it means to be a disciple is not just to be a place where we narrate those experiences, but we try to narrate those experiences inside the narrative arc of Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection. So what would it mean to tell these stories and then, and then tell them alongside or interpret them through or have them interpreted by uh, the, the gospel story? 
um, but the gospel story not just as a religious thing, but as the actual movements of of the second person of the Trinity in the world who enters in in life, death, and is resurrected um, as a kind of narrative shaped even reality itself. So in the midst of busy lives, where everyone is trying to find their thing, maybe the church can be the counter to all of that. Maybe instead of offering another thing in a sea of things, the church can simply give story. The church offers space to share stories, to reflect on our own stories and how they intersect and mingle with the story of God working in and through the world. In this case, the church becomes not a thing, but a story, the story. Yeah, so the church, you know, are kind of back to our thing, that the church becomes a community of stories, and, and that's, its, that's its thing. That it just, and so it's almost like the church, we could say to those hockey parents, is that like, well, actually, we, we think that we can impact your kid's identity more directly because we give your young people pure stories and by pure i don't mean like untainted or yeah holy i mean that hockey and basketball and even like violin you have to do work to give it narrative shape like you actually have to it, it isn't de facto a story but church life maybe even confirmation things like that could be just kind of de facto narrative um and every human being, one way or another, lives in and out of other people's stories. And this is part of what the age of authenticity destroys story, because the age of authenticity says you're a fake and you're a loser if you live out of anyone else's story. You have to only you're live out of your own story. You're inauthentic. You're not unique. You're not original. You're you're a fake. You're a fake yeah. if you live out of anyone else's story. But that's not true. No, no one, no one can live their own story. You out, every human being has to live out of someone else's story in some way. Um, and we know this. Like Comic-Con is people living out of other people's stories. Like, like we all do that, um, but we get caught. We get caught in this inconsistency in the age of authenticity. So the church is kind of saying, come, figure out what it might be to live your life in the story of Jesus Christ, to live your life in the story of these people who are kind of on a pilgrimage, on the way of trying to figure out what it means to be bending our lives towards the eschatological future of God's coming. What does that actually look like? What does that 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 mean? Well, um, yeah. And, and to give our young people, like I'm thinking like, give, instead of pageants, pageants are great, but yeah. instead of that, what we give your young people is we're just going to give them pure stories again. I, I don't, again, I don't mean this like, um, uh, pejoratively, like they're they're good, but they're just going to get to re- like what do we what do you, what are you what are you going to give my kids? Well, what's hockey going to give your kids? Well, they're going to give them a, a way to work hard. They're going to give them um, a way to be in shape. Um, downstream, they may get a story about what it means for them to be there. What what are young young people going to get in the youth group or in the confirmation? Just stories. It's all we can offer them are a bunch of stories from the biblical text, but also stories of Gus the janitor who battled cancer for 15 years and his wife prayed for him every night and um, and he made it through or whatever. Or, you know, Amanda who's really struggling with her own depression right now and actually doubts more than she believes and she's going to tell the eighth graders that story. And we're just going to let it hang that she doesn't really even know if she should believe this anymore. And we're going to wonder, wow, that's amazing. 
And then even to, to ratchet it back another level is if we stop competing for loyalty, rational, willful consent to things, then the church may even actually be able to say, how can we send you out into basketball? And how can we hold um, almost like prayer vigil for you being gone? So that we're, rem- I mean, part of being a Protestant really is, is that it's in our ordinary lives that we find our faith. And so I think in the midst of decline, we're always like, well, why aren't they coming? Because the only way we know to count vitality is like, are people here? And are they here? Can I chart to- growth on my annual report? Right, and, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. yeah. So that there's that kind of move of counting and acceleration that happens there. As opposed to saying, okay, what we need you to do here, I mean, this would be really interesting, like, practical thing is like say okay you're going to disappear i mean we know parents you're going to disappear uh with your kids for the next six months yeah we need to hear the stories of why this is important to you mm-hmm. you know and then we want you know so we want you to come back we're well, going to come back at christmas well we want to create a space for you to like tell us what's been going on in hockey what was the greatest moment like what's one what's one event that made you think about yourself you know like to ask ask them Sharing to ask, that experience yeah because part of what doesn't happen too is that they don't ever narrate the experience of hockey they just get on the train of like go oh, this week then we go that then we do this then we do this yeah. to actually start when they start narrating and be like oh you know what, actually, I don't like it that much. I don't know why I do this <laughs> so much. Better go to play it against sports yeah, and drop off my time bets. to drop off and play it against sports, who's our sponsor this yeah, episode, this week by brought to you by Play It Against Sports. Right, right. Yeah. So. Well, and, and what's cool, So that too, can be prophetic, I guess, and, is my point. And they'd get some recognition, too, yes. from the church. Yeah, or we could call it some legitimate affirmation. Some pure recognition. Some pure, no, yeah. <laughs> New Time Religion is a podcast featuring Dr. Andy Root, which is produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend or two about our show. You can find more about Andy's books at his website, andrewroot.org, or order them on Amazon. His most recent series focuses on Charles Taylor's work and the secular age. The first book, Faith Formation in a Secular Age, is available now, and the second book in the series, The Pastor in a Secular Age, is coming out on June 18th. New Time Religion is a production of the Alter Guild Podcast Network. You can check us out on alterguild.org for some other great shows. New episodes of this show in our first season will be coming out every week. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week for another round of New Time Religion.